0: To resident advisors exchange our series of conversations with the artists labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape my name is mark smith and i'm the tech editor at resident advisor this week's exchange is with d bridge despite being one of the most respected players in drum and bass the man born darren white has done as much as anyone to explode our idea of what the genre can be with his own productions and label exit White fluidly builds connections with genetically related styles, building a mutable, but instantly recognizable sound in the process. The vision was crystallized on his first LP in a decade, A Love I Can't Explain, which was the occasion for bringing in White for a conversation with veteran music journalist, Joe Muggs. Together, they trace White's life from his small town roots through the breakneck evolution of Jungle, and his transition into new territories following the founding of Exit. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The exchange with dBridge is up next.
1: Nice, hi Darren. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. Um, how are things? Are you, what's the occasion that we're interviewing you on? What's, what's going on that's important?
2: Um, I'm gonna assume it has something to do with the fact that I've finally released my second solo album after 10 years. That might
1: be it. <laughs> so, yeah,
2: we'll go with that.
1: All right, I mean the obvious question then is what took you so long?
2: I had other things going on in terms of projects, musical projects. It wasn't really sort of at the foremost in my mind. Maybe on a personal level, self-doubt in some respects, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do and how I wanted what I wanted it to be. Those are probably the, the main reasons. But yeah, I think it was it was more, it was kind of like I think the, the idea of it, ten years of it, was coming up, and that was sort of playing on my mind. <laughs> I was like, "This is getting ridiculous now." He's like, "You're not D'Angelo, get on with it." <laughs> <laughs> do you, do you know I mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, you have been busy. Um, I mean, Exit mm. is prolific label. Yeah, I mean, what what aside from recording and kind of realizing that you had to do an album and doing it, I mean. Over the last few years, what what's been the main focus of your life? Is it DJing? Is it the label? Is it?
2: It's been a mixture of all three things, three and that, and just life in general. I think you know. I think for the label, it's the label kind of goes through this kind of cyclical kind of me looking for new artists every now and then. Sort of, they I I get a group of artists and they sort of sort of blossom, so to speak. And then I kind of feel like maybe I should sort of start looking for some some new artists as well. So there's, that's been going on. The DJing, yeah, that's that's been a part of it. Um, I've struggled with that a bit over the years as well. Just kind of, I think there's something that a, a few producers and go through in sort of like separation of me the DJ and me the producer. So there's been that stuff going on, and. Yeah, moving, leaving England, moving to Antwerp and starting a family. So there's been a lot of sort of, you know, these life things going on as well.
1: And, and hanging around in the background, of course, is bad company as well. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, that was, that was, uh, yeah, that was an interesting project. Usually, when people say interesting, it means it's quite you know, Painful, you know I think, yeah. Usually the, the yeah. Euphemism, yeah. Um, that was that was fun, it was fun, and then it wasn't, and then it's something I'm proud of in terms of um, the history and what it's what you know, what it's kind of contributed, but I think. Looking back on the project itself, I don't think it was fully realised as much as I'm, not I'm just I'm going to say I hoped rather than we. Do you know what I mean? Because uh, I don't want to put in it you know, on, on anyone else. Um, so it was it was something I felt that I needed to get out of my system, and something I felt that. Why not? Do you know what I mean? I think I could have, I think in some respects, I was, was probably the, one of the main sticking points in it, and us all getting back together as such. But then it was like, I, you know, I've got nothing to prove. Why not? Have some fun. It'd be good to hang out with the guys again. It, and Yeah, I, just, I, I don't want to put too much of a downer on it. It was fun, but it wasn't what, it didn't really become what I hoped it would. Um, but that, I think that's just the nature of, you know, these, these kind of things, you kind of look back on them and, like, hope that those sort of glory days can be re-realised, re- 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 and they tend to not.
1: <laughs> I don't want to focus too much on it, because this is a debridge interview. I we're, we're, part here of for, my history, we're here for your sorry, stuff, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, what did you hope for from from getting it back together?
2: I hoped that we would kind of carry on in terms of where we left off, in terms of as a group, where we were, where we were going into this whole sort of, there was this transition we were going to, like this digital nation thing, which is all these live, almost like it would be becoming like a digital rock band of some some description.
1: Are you saying you wanted to be the the new prodigy?
2: <laughs> Far from it. <laughs> <laughs> Even though our manager, who happens to be their manager, would have liked that, I think. But bless, you know, no, it was. That, that would have been too big a, I don't know I just wanted us to be to be us but I think you know you grow up and things things change it was almost like this, the distance of it kind of gave it this image of like oh right yeah that was all cool and it was great and everything but you almost like there was a reason why we split up <laughs> as well <laughs> and then sometimes that sort of sort of starts to come back around
1: um so was there also a pressure from the fans to be a kind of tribute act to yourselves rather than do something new
2: yeah i think there was in some respects i think there was almost like, there was a, there was like these two two opposing forces in the sense of like there was the, the original fans who wanted us to just kind of like do what we did and then there's like you know we'd signed to ram and you're in the modern age of drum and bass and you need to create something that can sonically stand up with what's going on right now what we did then didn't necess- doesn't necessarily work now <laughs>
1: <laughs> for, for people outside of drum and bass this is almost difficult to comprehend because yeah. the sonic arms race of drum and bass is a real special thing in its own right isn't it
2: yeah it's... yeah it is it's something that i've purposely tried to steer clear of just because i'm i've I haven't got a clue to be honest about any of that stuff but yeah it's just um when the the sort of the details overtake the the vibe that's when I personally lose interest as well I just want to kind of let's just get a vibe I don't want to spend five hours sort of sculpting a snare, Do you know so <laughs> yeah
1: well I mean that takes us quite neatly onto your solo stuff and your solo sound, which um, seems to me has kind of been uh, variations on a the theme. There has it's been exactly the opposite of a kind of arms race. You've you found a mood and you've really worked within it over years.
2: I'm very, I, I've, I've I've said it quite often. I'm very sort of I'm quite a bit of an emo, so I want things that kind of create a feeling or create a, 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 a an emotional response in me. It's quite dreary in some respects, but <laughs> <laughs> but I think that maybe that's my thing, <laughs> sort of um, this sort of sort of like a underlying moroseness.
1: <laughs> but they, uh, okay, uh, I mean, let's go right back to some roots because you were like a shoegaze and Cure fan, yeah, as a teenager, same as me. I mean, I grew up in the Thames Valley, and that was that was our music. We yeah. were proud of it. Um, and from the outside, it was really easy to to take the piss out of boys with fringes over their faces, kind of staring at their effects pedals. Yeah. And yet, once you're in the thick of it, once you've got your ride record or your My Bloody Valentine record turned up, it's like you're out in the cosmos. It's majestic. It's huge. Yeah. It's the absolute opposite of dreary. Yeah. Um,
2: yeah, exactly. I th- Yeah, if you, you know, you, that stuff kind of, it really sort of resonated with me. I th- it's just... Um, I think I, because I, I grew up in a time also of sort of Bruno Brooks and the chart show and all that kind of stuff. Who,
1: Gary Davis? Yeah.
2: <laughs> but it was like when I started to sort of really find my own kind of voice, it was that stuff that sort of re- connected with Chapter House and um, I suppose the sort of the Manchester stuff and, um, you know, The Fall and.
1: Whereabouts did you grow up?
2: Where in, you- in Malvern. In Worcestershire, yeah. So it was.
1: It's fairly disconnected. Yeah, from it was going on as such.
2: Exactly. So we had smash hits, you know. Um, like I say, Bruno Brooks, and then it was just kind of sort of swapping tapes and actually the jukebox down at the the Nag's Head and and the Morgan and just like swapping swapping music with your mates as well. So it was. Um,
1: were, were you a goth? Were you? Did you like dress the part? I didn't go that
2: far with it. <laughs> I was. Uh, I was more into Paisley at the time. <laughs> that was more my thing, and a really awful leather jacket with with a fur collar, <laughs> and a flat top. I had as well. Uh, I love that flat top. Um, that's quite a combination. Yeah, I right. it is. If you've, I've got a picture, and it is quite a combination. What
1: people don't appreciate is how, in small towns, certainly then when you didn't have that much communication with the outside world, like subcultures would kind of bleed together because there'd be only like one punk and one goth in the
2: town. Yeah, exactly. And we were all mates as well, and it was kind of like we'd our going out was going up onto the hills. And doing drugs for do you know what I mean? It was like
1: waiting for the aliens to come, <laughs>
2: yeah, pretty much. It was that, it was you know, it was, it, it, there, there wasn't a lot going on. We had, we did have a nightclub in Worcestershire called Tramps, and you know, it wasn't the greatest music, but, <laughs> but it was just some way for us to connect. But where we were, it was, we started to, you know, as, as in the early 90s, it was getting into the kind of. Early sort of dance music, you know, Castle Morton was just around the corner. So that happened. That had a, you know, real big effect on me. Um, and there was just, for me, I think sonically as well, there was this connection between the sort of shoegaze and what Manchester were doing and then break beats and dance. And so it was like this natural progression into.
1: So, so were you going to free parties? Were you like experiencing it um, out under the stars? And-
2: yeah, there was a couple. There was a couple. I think I, mean, I, think I managed to get to a couple DIYs, if I remember rightly. There was a few that we didn't find, <laughs> um, but I think yeah, the Castle Morton one was the one, the big one. I because I'd, I'd come back to London, and then my mate was like, "Yeah, it's it's going on," and I just got on a train straight back. <laughs> I was like, um, "There's no way I'm missing this." And I, you know, I remember they they like the police had had it all cordoned off, but because we knew the area, we knew ways in. So got, I was just like, we were literally going in and out as, as we please. <laughs> it
1: was amazing. That's so funny. <laughs> People don't appreciate the connection with drummer bass, but, but I mean, obviously the Bristol guys were so connected with that.
2: Yeah.
1: Crusty traveler free festival scene. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, I, I've spoken to Crust on, on a couple of occasions and he kind of puts Castle Morton as like the crux event in his life almost.
2: Yeah. It was, it was, it was, it was. Whew. It's weird because obviously you can look, you look back with like this whole rose tinted view, but it was really out there. What was going on? And it was just like, like I said, the, all these sound systems and the ones I, you know, like Spiral Tribe were there. And I just, it's weird, just certain songs that I've, I remember. There was that, there's a really cheesy hardcore version of a Beatles tune <laughs> for some reason that stuck with me.
1: Is it Eleanor Rigby?
2: No. That it, was, that was around around was that, that, that time. One, um, I, I, I'm not sure which one it was. But,
1: I didn't make it myself, but there was one DIY at Castle Morton Tape that was just our soundtrack for about two years after that. Yeah. Pennies from Heaven and like certain, and, and Merc tunes and like so, yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah, no, it was, it was... Uh, the, so I say growing up there and having that sort of disconnect in some, some ways from the rest of the world, in, you know, in a lot of ways, um, you know, I, cause as I was in a band as well as a lead singer in a band, we used to do really dodgy covers of like, um, Simple Minds and mm-hmm. Steppenwolf and Benny King, just real sort of, sort of random. We made a few of our own original songs, the, the Mr. Thomas rap about our geography teacher. I remember that. <laughs> you know? So it was like, you know, when I let, I, I still look back at that place and just love, what it did for me, because I left, you know, I left London in quite, you know, I left, I left home when I was eleven, and I went to live with my auntie and uncle in Malvern. Um, so it was quite a difficult time for me, but moving there and then the friends that I've made there and still have, it was so so important to me. And so it's like that whole era of my life, in some ways, has moulded me into into who I am today.
1: So what were your ambitions at that time? Did you, did, was music like, did it seize you quite early or do, were you like more interested in academic stuff or?
2: I was, at the time I was more academic. Um, I wanted to go to Bristol University to study real time computer systems. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to do like, um, I remember wanting to create a 3D like a an animation like 3D animation movie that was my thing, and then I think Toy Story came out and it really sort of pissed on my chips. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, okay. Um, so because I actually so I, like I, said, I had to leave I left Malvern, and I went back to London. And I started I was studying computers there, and then I was so I was learning like I learned about seven or eight different computer languages. Um, so I was and I was. Had a conditional acceptance offer to Bristol University, and then, <laughs> and then I went to live with my brother in jungle and drum and bass sort of quite in the way. and Decided, no, you ain't going. <laughs> Forget any thoughts you've got of that. It's like let's let's do this. Um, so yeah, that really, yeah, that was a quick turnaround.
1: So what clubs were you going to? What what Um, were the the key ones?
2: The key ones at the time, because I was South London, so we were all about Laserdrome. Um, But we used to go like Roast, Astoria, Um, there'd be like Orange, where I think they did things at Hippodrome. There was, uh, what was the other one? Desert Storm, uh, Lee Valley Training Estate, they used to do their things. the what was it, equinox, those two that they did in in Leicester Square, classic.
1: So these these were quite lawless raves, right?
2: Uh, yeah. I remember the actually the first Jungle Fever that was on Curtain Road. That was I remember that was pretty lawless. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, yeah, the, I'm pretty sure there was like Channel Four were there, weirdly enough. Um, and that's but, when
1: that's when Shoreditch was a wasteland, more or less.
2: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I didn't really know m- too much about it. Kind of thing it was like my brother used to take me. I used to just tag along with him. He's like, "Yeah, yeah, we're going here." We're like, okay, and be like, "Yeah." And it's just it's like almost like years later. I was like, "Oh man, that was <laughs> when I was at plastic people." And then suddenly recognizing the gateway on the other side of the road. Like, oh right, okay, <laughs> that's where I was. Um, but yeah, at the time it was it was it was a strange time. It was kind of like it's there's this whole thing of this sort of you know talking about the knife culture and things that are going on today. For me it was like it was almost just as bad then as well. Um in in the early nineties. It's like a lot of people were carrying, you know <laughs> carrying weapons and it was like the whole single bandana over one eye and the jeans rolled up. and CS it's Gas
1: was quite popular as so. well. Yeah. so
2: And people like all day is, uh, in like Brockwell Park and people getting stabbed in their bottoms used to be like a weekly occurrence. It felt like it was. So it's, it's always like it's this, it kind of went hand in hand in some respects, but at the same time, you know, th- there's all of that. It was just, there was this underlying energy that you had to be a part of and I just, you know, I needed to be a part of it. It's that you could choose to kind of mix in all of that if you wanted to, but, you know, it was, it was worth the risk, so to speak. (laughs)
1: This, this was my experience as, you know, a really white, small town boy Mm. coming into London and like going to the occasional thing and going, this is terrifying. But then once you're in the thick of the dance floor, as long as you're participating, it was like, it was, it's still a rave.
2: Yeah, exactly. I think early 90s when I was with my brother and we were doing Sewage Monsters and we, we did, I did, I remember we did a couple of PAs at, um, PAs, say PA. Basically, you put a dat tape on and pretend to play the keyboard. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those, those are the days. Um, yeah, did a couple of them for, for Desert Storms and that was around the time as well I kind of linked up with like Lenny the Ice and um, Arms House Crew and that was sort of they they were in they were doing the um, what was the the main drum and bass at uh, the carnival they they i think it's all saints i think they used to have the all saints stage then i was just in the thick of it and just loving it you
1: know. I can imagine if you were... Because, I mean, they they were important players. And mm. and so, you know, you were right in the mid... Because, I mean, those stages at Carnival were mosh pits as well.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Actual mosh pits. And yeah.
2: I haven't been back to Carnival in so long. Um But, yeah, it's kind of like... That was, you know, Carnival 93. I think 94, I think they were still doing it as well. Um So it was just... It was weird, though. It was kind of like... I was there, but I wasn't... I was very quiet, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was like... And um, I always remember actually being at, like, Lenny's studio and them, them having a meeting, like, Groove and Navi and Hype and everyone coming round, and I was just a little guy, a little spotty kid in the corner, just sort of, you know, just, keep, just try, trying to write tunes. Um, but, yeah, I've always kind of sort of been weirdly connected with it, you know, with them in, the, in some in some ways
1: i mean in terms of the music you were making were you thinking about self expression at that time or was it just make a jungle tune
2: um i think i was just learning my craft more than anything and uh, you know i listen back to some of that stuff and and you know it's awful but it's you can see the the roots and the, the progression of where it where i where, where, you know where i am today um, and back then, it was like, just learning to use these pieces of equipment, where we the would act the S950 and the, S1, the Akai S1000 and mixing desks and whatever. So it was like, you were influenced by what you were listening to as well, you know, so and that's, I think if you listen to, to, to Jungle, it's very, it's, it's quite insular in that way of sort of, we've all borrowed from each other. and and. But it's in a, in a progressive way. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, if you look at the early, it was, it, in fact, it was lawless. <laughs> I think, in the terms of like a record would come out and if someone had left their break clean, you'd have that straight away. Do you know what I mean? Or if there was a bait, yeah, I'm having that. Do you know what I mean? So it's, it's like, it was. It was, it was all part of the progression though. And I think as if it's like you, um, the, my main sort of, um, example is like if you listen to, you know, to the aim and break from what it is to what it became and what in the different versions, it's all through resampling. So sampling was like what I was really into, um, and trying to get my head around and, you know, listening to like, uh, especially like, um, early Dillinger. You know, like Southside Stompers and all those kind of tracks, um, stuff on moving. What Moving Shadow were doing, um, all that stuff uh, was really sort of like, ah, oh, used to bug me. Like, how did they do this? How <laughs> did they do this? And that was that was what drove me more than anything. Like, I need to kind of learn how to do this. The
1: pace was insane at that point. Mm. I mean, really, Jungle was two years. Yeah. It was kind of '93, and by the end of '95, it was done, and drummer bass was off yeah. on, on the next thing. But so, and during those two years, jungle just evolved and evolved and evolved,
2: yeah, day was, by day, not week by week, but yeah, it did. And there was there was like you know, I think there was like the whole ragga jungle thing, and then there was like the dark side. Some of it was really sort of like quite creepy, <laughs> Do you, know? you know, some really like quite disturbing. You know, and then it was that, that sort of became a thing. And then it sort of, I think it sort of refined itself and DMB sort of grew, as, as it is, sort of grew out of that, out of that refinement, out of people, I've personally feeling like there were, i maybe moving away from sampling, but just kind of learning, again, like learning their craft, and not being so slapdash about it, like I've kind of just Seeing you know what, seeing what you could throw at, seeing what sticks. In some ways, it's what a jungle was, because <laughs> uh, you li- you listen to it and you're like that. They they're not in key, <laughs> Do you know. What I mean? But it works. So I think as people as producers progressed, they got better at what they were doing, and then that's how dnb and you know sort of came out of that.
1: Do you think there's there was a sort of parallel between the sound going into something more refined and kind of. Replicatable, if that's the right word, mm. and trying to go t- towards something more sustainable in terms of a scene that wasn't quite so chaotic.
2: Maybe. I think I, uh, because I, you know, I, I look at my progression and I think it was like suddenly you were seeing crews were being formed and that was a big part of what was going on and, and crews were defining. The, the sound in some respect you know or dif- defining their own sound in um, terms
1: of reinforced and metal yeah heads reinforced
2: heads like v v um, so I kind of like when I kind of came out of the whole arms house thing is like wanted to be part of something like that um, so I kind of got involved with uh, a, a mutual friend introduced me to Maldini who was already with working with um, Trouble and Vinyl and so that was kind of like okay, cool. You know, there's this is Clayton's down there. He's got a studio. There's this kind of there's Just Jungle. There's Kane. There's Shogun. You know, they got they got Renegade Recordings and stuff. So it's like I, I can kind of get with this. There's like a nice there's a nice crew mentality here. Um, and then there was the connection with those guys between between uh, Tov and No U Turn and Nico and things like that. So it's kind of like that. It was really something I sort of gravitated towards. I liked the idea, and I think as, as, as you say, like 95, 96, like Blue Note was starting to kind of take a hold and become a thing. There was Obviously Blue Note speed, all those kind of nights. And th- that refinement in sound was affecting me as a producer as well and what I wanted to make. And then, you know, me and Jason were going down to, going down to Blue Note and being like, right, yeah, this is, this is what we need to be doing. And, in, and TOV at the time wasn't really geared towards that. It was a lot more, for want of a better word, sort of mainstream. I'm not even not sure what, where the scene was at at that time because it just kept sort of splitting I, I'm apart. I'm trying to think,
1: I, 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 I would have thought of it as party tunes. It was just kind yeah. of like, you know, straight ahead. Yeah, like yeah, exactly DJ tools kind of.
2: Yeah, so it was kind of like, but we were a bit more, I don't say deeper; it was a bit more aggy in some respects. But um yeah, that was like, and wanted to be a, a part of that. So me and Jason, basically, because of the stuff we were writing, it was like, well, this can't it can't work on TLV. So we basically made Clayton start Renegade Hardware. That whole era was was you know for me as well really important because it was like, again, you know, the equipment was changing and like the new samplers coming around. There's like. Working with Nico and his whole ethos of producing really sort of ru- rubbed off on me as well. Which is kind of this whole hands-on, on the desk, live EQ in, live reverbs and effects, and basically his studio in the metro city. Met- I think I don't think he turned it off for like four years or four or five years. It never was never turned off, um, and so it was like that really it's like that was a from personally that was like I say a really really great era for me um because at the same time watching ed ed and uh matt and ed with their old russian optical thing and where they were going trace you know it was always so it's always been around for me what it's like felt really sort of cutting edge in, in its own way
1: i mean i think people often don't appreciate how fiercely dedicated the drum and bass scene was yeah. all the way through the second half of the 90s Um you know obviously people got distracted like outsiders got as distracted because garage was going on or trip mm. hop or you know whatever other developments but drum and bass somehow just kind of knuckled down yeah and whether it was you know reinforced over in Dollis Hill or the V guys over in Bristol or whatever people were just like honing and honing and honing these different sounds
2: yeah, I think it. in some ways, I think it was to do with the fact that we were really interested in what each other was doing as well. We took an active interest in it. We'd go out and, you know, somewhere like um, Blue Note, for example, it was like, it was, they weren't really producer DJs then. they were just DJs. So the producers would go down there in the hopes of hearing their stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like I so say, having somewhere like what Nico had out with the Metro store, just a, his whole setup. It was just like it was somewhere you, you wanted to be, and so there was all these hubs of creativity, and we were all sort of bouncing off each other, and you know, listening to each other's records. So, it, and it was quite, it, it was very blinkered in the sense of like we didn't really care what was going on outside of our scene.
1: Well, this is this is the flip side of it that it became seen as monomaniac. You know, it's like drum and bass is just drum and bass, and mm. it had its own rules and you know to outside ears often it just sounded like the same thing over and over again
2: <laughs> yeah 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 it did um
1: but at, at the same time people were raving to it it was
2: yeah i think it's it's weird it's gone through it's, it's definitely gone through his peaks and troughs and it's it's almost been it's almost been killed yeah <laughs> a couple of times but it's just like this this is this like you say there's this die-hard sort of undercurrent of of people who just you know who won't let it go
1: (laughs) (laughs) at what what point did you think that it was sustainable that maybe this was actually a career and that drum and bass was something that was more than just you know another phase in the evolution of dance music
2: personally um it was weird because i had i did have a job i was a kitchen porter for a while whilst I was making it. And then, I, it, again, it was a different time, especially like in terms of the, in, in the early 90s and mid 90s, because I was signing on and I was on the dole. And you, and you go down there and you go down to the dole office and they're like, so what do you want to do? I want to make music. And they just look at you like, <laughs> all right, we, we've got nothing that could fits that description. Here's your check. You didn't get sanctioned then. <laughs> yeah. well, do you know what I mean? So it was like, we were left to kind of get on with it, weirdly. When you saw people like, like you say, like Ronnie with the whole new forms and represent Goldie with Timeless, Photek, Source Direct, you know, I was watching, uh, you know, Moving Shadow and how that was being run as a business and being obviously being a part of hardware and seeing that how that was run as a run as a business as well. It's like okay, I could. As a career choice, it probably didn't really, really sort of stick until bad company when, you know, that was what 90, what the nine was what 98, December 98, I think. So that, when that suddenly, cause I didn't do my first DJ gig until 97. So I was a producer all this whole time up until, up until 97. And then it was like, Oh, you can get paid for. All right. Okay. <laughs> you know, it was like, that's an option. I can I can go with that. Um But yeah, it wasn't until the BC, and then we signed to what was the agency? Oh God, she's gonna cuss me for, for <laughs> forgetting it. Caroline, unique, unique artist. So there was there was we with, with Andy, hype, all the GQ, everyone was on there, and then so suddenly we were like hot shit, and we were just you know we were getting paid a fair amount of money um, internationally as well yeah so then, then it was like all oh, right okay this can i can do this um but i think you know like i say looking um, looking at people like ronnie seeing that they were starting you know these people getting sort of chart success of, of sorts um and i think the majors in some ways the majors they decided to get involved and i think they signed a lot of the wrong people as well um, there was a few acts, few people that got signed and it was like, they got their fingers burnt and they were like, oof, no, you know, let's, let's, let's not get involved with this. Um, so that's when I think it was like, it, it, it nearly peaked and then it just sort of I dove mean, off quickly.
1: With, with untold eternal respect for Photek and Source Direct, they weren't major label acts. <laughs>
2: You, you know <laughs> exactly
1: this was like the most underground sound you could look for yeah. really
2: yeah that was so that was, was like that was quite a strange strange choice so who was it was it was it virgin or was it was, yeah uh, it was
1: source, <laughs> source through virgin i think yeah source. um but you have to suspect that there were huge amounts of drugs running through the major labels
2: <laughs> <laughs> more than likely <laughs> uh yeah so it, it seemed like it would became an option um but Mm. For me, like I so say, it wasn't until '98,
1: and and that really was drum and bass sustaining itself rather than relying on anyone else. Because
2: yeah, yeah um,
1: it, it was your own productions, and it was a drum and bass specialist agency, and it was the scene that was
0: like yeah. the
1: international scene that was, that yeah, was exactly. sustaining well, you.
2: We were you know we were going off to, off to America, and we were going off to like '97 was like a wasn't it was like '98 '99, um, New Zealand was. Popping off over there. Um, America again was popping off. And it's so Germany, Cologne, Mannheim, all these, you know, really like solid like DMB, like strongholds. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what happened. I think it was weird. I always kind of look back and think like, German base, sometimes it doesn't help itself. Um, and it used to be, it was almost quite closed off in the sense of like, we wouldn't let outside people get involved.
1: Nah. In, well, from, to, from the days of the Jungle Committee, I mean, was, there was always <laughs> there was always an attempt to kind of keep it locked.
2: Yeah, the mythical Jungle Committee. I remember I was a, I was asked to be a part. There was another one, not too long, not long after, um, and it didn't it didn't have a name. But there was a meeting at a pub over by Srd, and we were there, and it was like a lot of people, and there was <laughs> the, the discussion was. Um, slowing down the, the tempo. <laughs> it was like we were going to have this sort of scene wide consensus that we were going to bring the tempo down. Um,
1: what 150 or something?
2: <laughs> I think it was 164 was the agreed <laughs> tempo, <laughs> if I remember rightly. I've still, I think I've still got the sheet of paper that was written out. Um, and it was like, yeah, if everyone, if all of us write four or five tunes, then that's, you know, we all swap it. And then think, thinking back, looking back, the idea was a really good idea, but no one did it, I don't think. I think actually, no, actually tell like I did. Uh, my B-side, <laughs> my B-side on V called True to the Craft was that tempo, the agreed tempo. Um, but yeah, that never really took off.
1: Nice. So, right, name names, Who was who gonna do this?
2: <laughs> <laughs> name names, who was there? Uh, well, BC were there, um, I believe Dillinger, Lemon D were there, who was there? Total Science, uh, J Magic was there. Uh, God, he was there.
1: This is a real vision of what could have been. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. <laughs> if only we'd stuck to it. Do you know what I mean? It's just taken like this amount of time for us to, sli- to finally <laughs> come back down. Do you know Bless I mean? him. Um,
1: but yeah, so, so millennium time, obviously you were doing fine and the, the production values were ramping up. Mm. Um, was there, were you simultaneously <coughs> thinking, I want to do this, like more emo stuff or did that, was there a point where it was just like, ah, oh, I have to do this?
2: No, it was like, I think it's like, cause I've always been involved in collaborations and it's always been a part, it's almost like what I've brought to the table. Um, whether it was been working with future forces or bad company. So that was, you know, that was what I brought to it, to it. Um, and those tracks, which my name are on, I think you can kind of hear that. So that was, it was always there. Um, and it wasn't, and I think kind of like, like I could say working with my brother had a really profound effect on me as well, just kind of in terms of, in his approach to music and his ear kind of it was kind of it's, it's similar in the sense of kind of slightly it's almost like slightly detuned a little bit uneasy slightly a bit wonky um, <laughs> um, and that's kind of where I feel comfortable so we're doing when I I just kind of like I needed to when when BC sort of split up I wanted to I wanted to write my you know do my own stuff um I'd done obviously me and Mick had done there was true romance and then I did you know Bellini um and there was the stuff I did for bingo and things like that so it was kind of like me finding my feet um in that that respect and I think were so, there
1: other influences coming in on this I mean all that time that you'd been kind of in the thick of the drum and bass scene were you were you listening to other stuff outside Because a lot of people weren't
2: I was listening in the sense that I, in the sense that I was buying records and Sampling things like that and collecting samples. So, so I think my outside influences have always been outside of DMV. Um, so you know, collecting I was you know, collecting CDs like Mike. Oh, what's his name? Like Michael Stearns, Tamita, some well obviously Tangerine Dream. It's the like obvious one, but it was a big part of it. Um, and then sort of, just sort of collecting. Yeah, collecting records and having, and the, the my tonal choices were stuff that, looking back, had that connection. I think what's that guy's name? Is it Luke uh, Luke Ponty, um mm-hmm. st- Stuff stuff like that. Um, I you yeah, know, especially like with with Tangerine Dream, it was just kind of like you're finding these sections within their st- within their stuff with these the, these tones and stuff and layering them with other thing, other with other, with maybe stuff, something I'd got from Vangelis and whatever, and it's creating these quite odd harmonies. Um, that was um, a big part of part of my sound, and I think it's like...
1: Whoever could have predicted you'd end up fascinated with hardware.
2: <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> I mean, these are, these are all early synth experimenters who are, like, yeah. building their stuff on vast exactly. old synthesizers.
2: Exactly, and I think that's what kind of, like... I think it was weird being in BC because we were really at the cutting edge of the software and in the whole in the box thing. We really sort of ran with that, um, whether it was in the studio. Even to like, we were we used to take CDJs to to, to our events before. Before a lot of people, we got cussed heavily. Um, but it was when I really started to get back into hardware. It is that kind of thing of like with with the samplings. Like all I'm trying to do is recreate what I was hearing on those on those records um, and it's now in a position to be able to kind of get the sort of get the, the bits of equipment I want like my guitar pedal like collection is ridiculous <laughs> so I just love that just, just and that was something I learned again learned from Nico just kind of jacking things in and just seeing what happens and then of getting that connection of like ah oh, okay L- listening back to sort of you know my bloody valentine the obvious ones like soon and whatever and um hearing how those tones were created um and knowing that for me now like knowing that i'm able to do that it's just like i just really get off on it i can just do that all day and <laughs> the
1: i mean that that actual it's the control aspect the fact that people can really control a sound that doesn't involve clicking a mouse. Yeah. I remember seeing the, that Metalheads video quite recently, where you see Dillinger in the studio, and you suddenly realise that the reason his bass wobbled like nobody else's was because he was actually yeah. whacking a fader up and down to make it wobble.
2: Yeah, yeah exactly. So I think I think like when towards the, especially towards the end of BC, because we were becoming so software based, the studio as a, as a result was becoming very one player whoever was sat in the seat was in control mm-hmm. and then there were the you know the consequences of that was whoever's in the you know because the studio was say for example was at Fresh's house he was getting to know it more and more better and better and better so he was leading that so I was kind of feeling further and further disconnected from what was going on so that's kind of like when you know I had my when when I left there I had my little setup but it's still I was like Ugh. Still felt a little bit um, wasn't quite where I wanted to be, and it was when I li- linked up with Instrumental that suddenly, like, it all sort of clicked again. Like suddenly seeing, you know, working with them, it's like they'd sort of disappeared and then come back, like they were still in the '90s kind of thing, had all their their simps and their massive desk and it was just like all right yeah i've got that i've got that. where's my one of those and it was (laughs) was a lot of that
1: and and, i mean sonically it it was kind of coincidental or zeitgeisty or whatever but you know this is at the time when dubstep was being born and Mm. forward was happening were you aware of that that there were other people kind of going into these like more spacious moody territories
2: yeah no i was um And admittedly, I think I've said it before, admittedly, I was quite stuck up about it. Just (laughs) because, in the sense that I'd listen to it and I'd be like, really? Do you know what I mean? Just, just, it just didn't, I, weirdly, just didn't connect with me straight away. That's Uh, a lot
1: of people's first reaction to that early dubstep stuff was, is that it?
2: Yeah. And so it was almost like you have to kind of hear it and see it in context to kind of, and then also sort of like, it's like that, again there's this snobbishness of like, I've been doing it for so long, that like, you forget where you started and like you look back and like actually if you look back and look back at your own stuff, there was a it was really bloody raw. So it's like they've still got to get, you know, still move through all those stages before the, you know, to get to where you think they should be. But we it was like I knew it was going on, but it was again it was like this there was a mass exodus from D M B. Of, of producers who were suddenly like right now we're making dubstep now and it was, you know the whole bandwagon jumping thing and that was like so that was something i was like i'm not doing that i'm staunch, like dmb you
1: know and um but you were doing the half tempo thing by then
2: um
1: kind of by the time people were actually I jumping think... ship like by the time it became a big move from d b to dubstep you were definitely
2: well when okay because i don't know the, the sort of the true the, the true timeline of dubstep when would you say that it originally really started just so i can get it in my the mind.
1: actual scene was was happening from like 2002 like the forward stuff
2: right so yeah but
1: so it was 2006 and 7 when like drum and bass scene started properly taking notice and
2: yeah so i was still in my staunch nah d and <laughs> By then, right. I hadn't hooked, okay. I hadn't hooked up with um with. um
1: Okay, maybe it is a bit later then. Yeah, yeah. for
2: for me personally, I hadn't hooked up, so I was still kind of like, nah, I'm not I'm not about that. This is what I do, because I'd had my obviously because I had my my label as well at the time. So so I was aware of it, but it wasn't something that I felt like I needed to not needed or wanted it was something that I wanted to make because I didn't. I think I think personally, I felt like. I'll just be perceived as a bandwagon jumper, so I don't want to. You know, yeah. it was almost like it would be. It was almost too late for me to do it if I was going to do it. Um, so yeah, so it's almost I think like two thousand and nine when I was working with Instra. I think that was from from my point of view where I was. We were seeing artists from that scene who were like wanting to move off into other directions mm-hmm. as well. And then we, what we were doing with the Autonomic was something that they connected with as well, which I thought, you know, which was really cool. So we were getting stuff from like, Scuba, um, James Blake, Pearson, you know, Ramadan Man, just who were exploring their own, you know, directions.
1: And a lot of them had been drummer bass kids yeah. early on, like yeah. as kids' kids.
2: Yeah, exactly. So it was like, that was... um that was when i think we, we, when we, and also i think working with insta as well kind of like they definitely opened me back up to kind of like being honest about your influences and being honest about what what it is that drives you and what you know it's just basically what influences you you know it's like it's almost like sometimes dmb was like Nah, nothing we we we, we don't we're not influenced by anything this is, we just John race. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so, <best>
1: shit. <laughs> Yeah.
2: So it was like, it was really refreshing to kind of hang out with these guys who were like, you know, Damon, who was really, like, really into sort of, sort of with the Warp and Boards of Canada, Drexia, and then hearing the connections as well. And then again, sort of like being able to sort of openly put Express my sort of influences and connections into what we were doing as well. Um, so that, I think that's when we were kind of like the halftime thing, it was like it's, it doesn't, you know, as long as it works, it doesn't, doesn't matter. So you know what I mean? It's almost like I, I think I'd almost it's like... It's all electronic yeah, folk. Yeah. <laughs> I'd gotten to the stage where I just chilled out <laughs> yeah. about not being taken it so soon, not feeling like I have to kind of hold this flag of like, it, it can only be this way.
1: And do you feel like since then, I don't know, eight, nine years, you've kind of been in that space and been able to explore it. Has there been big changes since then? I mean, hearing this new album, it sounds like you're still exploring some of the same ideas. Isn't
2: it? Yeah, I'm exploring in the sense of... I I kind of like feel that DMB is b is, is a really, truly versatile form of music. And and I think, you know, a lot of that comes from the fact from it was so sample based, the fact that we could put, you know, put these basically these super groups together on a record that, you know, that of coming from completely different scenes. So it's like, we can do still, you know, still able to do that, piece those influences together into whatever this, whatever the, the, the agreed tempo is. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But I think it's like, it's, it's, I kind of feel like it's, for me, I've moved beyond that. It's almost like there's a, it's like a spirit, a sort of feeling that d has that can be explored in other tempos and in other, other areas of, of electronic music. And that's where I'm kind of like, where I'm at. I think it's like, I know that that's what I'm known for, but it's not the be-all and end-all for me. And it's kind of, I want to explore other areas of 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 electronic music, but bring what I've learned from that to it. In some respects, it's it's, it's more like what, what I used to do. When I used to get really pissed off with with bad company, I'd sort of bugger off and go and hang out with my brother. And it was, you know, it was cool being able to bring what I would learn from BC to what was going on over there you know I had a um, I got you know I got a couple of credits on um, the vintage high-tech album on K7 um, and things like that. so it's kind of like and then again kind of like what I learned from my brother and he, him getting me into JD and Dilla and that whole you know Sara and all that kind of stuff and that taking that then taking that back so that's why I'm it's I'm still, still doing that and that's why I love collaborating and just trying to piece all, you know, different things together and see what's, see what's possible. It's like, it's what, it's like, I'm really into sort of reaching out to people outside of our scene as well and hearing their versions of or what they think DMB is, you know, um, and trying to get, trying to, you know, trying to get them to produce stuff, that,
1: yeah and and i mean in that period since that kind of i guess the millennium era is when it was at its most insular and mm. inward looking and since then you know you end up with now with people like Omunit mm. and um uh machine drum all these people who've kind of cracked <laughs> yeah cracked the wall and were able to kind of bring bring influences both in and out um it's it's definitely become part of the electronic music family, the wider electronic music family again.
2: Yeah, and I think that's where I'm kind of sort of really happy with how Exit has progresses, because it's like, I love, it's like, I love straight up rolling drum and bass, like what Skeptical does. I love, you know, the sort of Jungle Duke influence stuff that Fracture does, or the stuff, you know, stuff that Fixate does. Um, I love, you know, what Consequence, and Joe Seven, and They Live, and you know my brother is Black Pocket, and Dan Harbenham. So it's like, if you look at my catalogue, if you look at the Exit catalogue, you can see that it's, it's, it's very varied, do you know what I mean? And I try, I do personally try not to have too many crossovers in terms of artists, do you know what I mean? I want people to have their own space and be allowed to have their own space, and In a weird way, I suppose, in some ways, having that ethos has allowed me to be who I am as well, so that I can go out there and put out a record like Too Late or my album and it, and people be not be so surprised by it hopefully <laughs> do you know what I mean <laughs> it's like it's been quite selfish I suppose in some respects <laughs> it's quite capital. so that
1: all of those people you've mentored all of, all of that work you put into the label was just so that you could carve out a space <laughs> that you
2: could... <laughs> in, in a weird way yeah you just carve out a space for, to, for me to allow me to be me <laughs> do you know what I mean so I don't have to kind of like like write a true romance again, because I can't. I really can't. <laughs> I wouldn't know what to do, <laughs> do you know what I mean? So, and I think it's like working with Instra and working with all these people over the years has kind of led me down this path. So this is where this is where my head's at, sonically. This is what I want to make, so I just hope people get it in some respects. But again, I'm not overly bothered if they don't. <laughs>